Clubhouse. Welcome to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home with your hosts, Beth Kushnick and Caroline Daly. Welcome to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home. I'm Caroline. Hey, Beth. Hey, Caroline. I am so excited to get to dive in again in our third episode into your wild and woolly career. You have had so many interesting jobs and I want to know everything. I'm ready to spill the tea because uh, <laughs> Good. Uh, I think I'm going to be dating myself for this entire episode, <laughs> but I'm willing to give it up for the fans. This is like, it, what was it, Gallagher? We have to, like, the front row gets wet. Get ready. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it. For our listeners, if you guys haven't gotten a chance, go back and check out Beth and Paul. They were covering specific stories from Beth's time on Reversal of Fortune all the way through her work on Private Parts. This episode, we're going to hit on for richer or poorer and rounders all the way through her move into TV and end at Fringe. You guys have no idea how many different sets this lady's been on. She gets around, y'all. I can't wait to talk about it. Okay, Beth, so you spoke that Reversal of Fortune was your first big job that you actually submitted yourself for and you got it. So talk to us about the behind the scenes. What does that process look like? The process has really changed, I'd say, over the last 20 or so years. Everything is based on relationships in the film and television business. You tend to kind of move in the same direction with a team and usually align with a certain group. That's something that's kept me going for many, many years. In those days, uh, I walked around with a portfolio and would go on an interview with a production designer and show actual photos, nothing digital in those days, uh, in a portfolio of the sets that I've done and kind of review the script and what the production designer's vision was going to be for the for the film and see how we clicked. And that's how you would get hired. Now, that uh, actually happens on a Zoom call. That's so funny. That's how I got my last job, a Zoom interview. But is it basically the same process? You're sharing pictures, you're just describing your vision for the different jobs? No, I think at this point it's more, you know, since everything's come from behind the scenes and people are sort of known for the kind of work that they do, not necessarily the part of sharing your old portfolio, but IMDB has become everybody in the film business's calling card. So what is different about getting a movie job than landing a TV job. What makes them different might be the prep time. Usually when you are on a full movie that's shooting wherever you are, New York, LA, Atlanta, then, you know, you have a pretty hefty prep time. If you're on a startup TV show, again, you have prep time that's kind of different because it's involved in deciding which sets are going to be built for the show. If you're on a pilot, you've got a run and gun, no prep time. Everything's usually shot on location, quick turnaround. It's more about what the 
job is and what's involved in getting it on the screen, they're all the same in terms of getting hired and pulling together a crew and doing what we do. So we know for actors, they have agents. When it comes to jobs behind the scenes like yours, do you get an agent to do these types of jobs? Usually what's called below the line below the titles, actors and producers and directors and writers come above the line. Department heads come below the line. We don't have agents. You know, we're all members of the unions and the union does have a availability list that can be given to producers when they come to town. But we're all sort of working really as freelancers doing our own connection making. So then how do you guys go about even finding jobs? Where do you hear about them? Are they listed somewhere? No, it's really a small community. It's really about word of mouth. And, you know, since you're connected to your certain people, they reach out. I mean, at this point, it's just kind of a scenario where everyone moves together. I was going to ask you, does it tend to be where you kind of all move as like one crew from one job to another? It is very much like that. Describe your process a little bit for a movie job, like highlight the different for us from starting a new show, which we completely talked about, to starting a movie job. There are differences in even within a movie job to, let's say, an, a New York unit of a movie job. When I'm doing a New York unit of which, uh, before I kind of transitioned into television, I did very large New York units that would come and pick the kind of iconic areas of New York where they wanted to shoot, let's say, The Intrepid or Times Square or like an anchor man too, you know, walking down any street with those characters. Those are instances where we might not see the production designer because they're still working in the in the city that the bulk of the film is being shot in. So I do do a lot of interacting with the set decorator on the part of the film that they're shooting. Sometimes it's involving what they're shipping to me you know, what kind of main set decorating items are coming here to be used. You're looking almost at a, let's say, anywhere from a five-day shoot to a 20-day shoot. You are kind of extracting what you are doing out of the script. So, of course, you need to read the script and know what's going on in the script for the overall character-driven work that you're going to do. But you have to focus very specifically on your aspects of the script. What about a show on location, not in New York City, like For Richer or Poorer? What do you do for that process? That is actually a bit of a lengthier process because usually on a show shot on location, you hire a local crew. So that would be a time where I may not necessarily have the usual people that I work with. Although, for instance, the lead man that I worked with on For Richer or Poor, I also worked with Thon Jumanji in New Hampshire. But that process relies heavily on what's happening locally. You know, the jobs that I did on location back many, many years ago were the first of turning, let's say, the city of Savannah into an actual filmmaking community. That must have been so exciting to be a part of that. It was. And the people were just so lovely and so open and excited and wanted to participate and help in any way. But on the other hand... In that small town, in those days, they only printed black and white film once a week. 
So you, you sort of get into your groove where you are. And of course, you're shipping things to travel your kit, your sources, your your tape measure, all the tools of the trade <laughs> that we talk small. about. That's right. <laughs> you know, you get settled quickly and then you've really got, got to get yourself kind of in your mental GPS b- before the existence of GPS to kind of get your bearings, you know, start prioritizing. Um, for richer or poorer, we had to do a lot of planning with the calendar because we actually planted cornfields for that job. Oh my gosh. So the prep started for that. Then we took a break and then we came back. Same oh, thing wow. with Jumanji. We shot twice in Keene, New Hampshire. You know, there are usually issues involved even bigger than the art department or the set decoration department when you're going to a specific place on location. On Vietnam War Story, we flooded fields and planted plastic rice sprouts to be Vietnam rice patties. There's a lot of pre-production and planning and conceptualizing to think about. I truly don't think people understand the scope of your work. (laughs) When you're planting rice patties, I just don't think they get it. Caroline, you get it now. And that is so appropriate to enter into this because as a set decorator, it's very different from how I would work in your home. You know, the things that I learn so much about and we get so focused on and we research and study and perfect for one particular film, it's not just conceiving of the best floor plan for a room or or a color palette. It's a lot of technical information. I'm sure things have changed over the years. And, and I know that we've talked about how at the beginning you had to deal with pagers and now we have cell phones and the business has just changed so much. Can you tell me some parts of your process that have really morphed over time? Sure. I mean, actually, a lot of us talk often about how we miss those days. When I think back and we actually did everything ourselves, we wrote our own check requests and dealt with finances of it. Everything's everything's done by credit card now and a studio follows you by your spending and what you're doing. And in those days, it was kind of hands off. We did our thing. It usually turned out okay. And everybody was happy. You know, it, yeah, it just wasn't... Big brother, right? Exactly. The way it functions now and the amount of people involved, you know, we have... And, and of course, we adore them and need them now, you know, production assistants and art department coordinators and set decoration coordinators. And, you know, everything has layer upon layer upon layer of what has to get done. And then let's not even go into how all of that happens with COVID. I don't know. It seemed much more like a run and gun kind of scenario. You know, the beeper seemed to get us through, except I will tell you on one particular job, there was actually a hurricane in New York. Oh my and gosh. why we were shooting, you know, is anybody's guess. 
but we were like renegades that we are or used to be. I kept getting paged by this woman who unfortunately was dialing the wrong pager number and was worried about the hurricane and looking for her husband. And I'm holding on for dear life at every phone booth we, me and my teamster were driving past to stop to call her back. Um, <laughs> so, you know, flying. I don't a, know. <laughs> I don't know your husband. I'm so sorry i can't help you oh um and gosh. in the meantime you know i would like to not fly away uh, <laughs> right <laughs> from the <this laughs> dorothy exactly but <laughs> you know in a way okay if you can possibly picture it no cell phone no instant contact in a way i think it all of the things that we had to deal with became my true basis for problem solving. We weren't texting pictures. We weren't solving things by committee. It was like, you just do it. You know, you just have this innate drive in you, I think, to get it done and to do what's required, the task at hand. With all the electronics kind of lifted away from it, it was fun in a different way. You know, I was laying my actual eyes on an actual sofa and putting my actual hand on the fabric and <laughs> sitting Soon you'll put my, on your VR goggles <laughs> right. and then you'll reach your little animated hand out. That's right. You know, I was, <laughs> yeah. I was putting my actual behind down on the pillow of the chair to see how the actor would sit in it. And it was a much more physical and visual connection. Now I've had to train my eye, and we've talked about this a lot, both at home and on set, to really be able to understand scale without seeing it in front of you, without seeing the relation to the tape measure in front of you. There was a different kind of feeling to it. And then, of course, when you're in person and you hit the mother load, you know, where you just find the perfect thing that you want. It's a lot more elation than when you find yeah. it online, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, we were friends with our vendors in a way that, of course, is developed because we can all say, well, we've been working together for 30 years. When you work with prop houses and, and consistent vendors, as a set decorator, you have your person you know, that you're their client and they are your point of contact. All those relationships developed in person, of course. I mean, even in those days, you know, if you walked into a prop house, uh, uh, your person there was dressed in a sports jacket. Yeah. It was like <laughs> a serious business, you know. Now, I, I sadly say that I, I don't know if I've seen some of my closest friends who were vendors in way over a year. Of course, we've all been shut down mostly and separated, but it's strange. You know, each prop house had an area for set decorators to come in. And, you know, when you consider it, when you were a set decorator in those days, you didn't have an office, really. I mean, you barely spent time in your office. You just moved from, you know, one vendor to another and your car was really your office. So they all came up with such a smart thing and a competitive thing between them all. You know, who had the best 
place to hang your hat for the day. Oh, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, to this prop house and because they have the best coffee or I'm going to go to this <laughs> prop house because they have the most comfortable swivel chair and a desk for me to work at. You know, you were almost parked there as a fixture and, you know, they would order you lunch and we would all share that time together. So I, I miss that so much, the interpersonal play of all of it. It's funny the way that cell phones feel like, oh, we have so much more instant communication. But at the same time, I think about what you're saying, and I can imagine how you must have had to verbally describe things over the phone and be very good at communication, be very good at making a decision and explaining exactly what you want, because you can't just send a picture. You know, I think that gets lost now, right? Yeah, very, very true. And in although in an interesting way, I think it's benefited the consumer for home decor because it has kind of shifted the vocabulary and people now understand certain things that I don't think they would ever have even been aware of scale and pattern and color and you know unless you're like really in the trade but now the way everything's marketed it's like pushing everybody in a certain direction you know, if you want something that's trendy, but it actually has changed both, I think, for the worse in some ways, but a lot for the better. Fascinating. I love the idea that the verbiage is basically being moved like it truly is. We're moving Hollywood to our home. Yes, exactly. When you're trying to juggle multiple jobs, which I imagine happened, did you ever have to cross decorating TV sets and dealing with movie sets at the same time? Or is everything like, no way you could just do like one thing at a time? No, really the only thing that you can ever double dip as we say on is like for instance doing a pilot while you're doing a series okay and that is something that i did often maybe six or seven times in the in the last 10 years or so and that's actually very difficult but if you have two solid crews when i did it the warehouse that we worked out of actually had a front door and a back door so we literally ran job blue in the back and job red in the front that is truly when i say that sometimes my job is like being an air traffic controller I can't even imagine trying to run like that. It's a seven day a week, really intense. You have to be so focused and able to save yourself from any catastrophic mistake. You know, and believe me when I tell you that we make the mistakes, but it's like within an inch of our lives, nobody knows but us. And it's kind of that temporary pain because, you know, it's a short-lived situation on a pilot. You know, for a couple of weeks, you're, oh God, you're just out of your mind <laughs> in, right? in, in, in stress. And then, uh, you know, you just collapse and don't even realize what you just accomplished. But yeah, I've, I've done it with my team and, you know, there's absolutely... The saying, it takes a village in the film industry could not be more apropos. That's amazing. You have to pull back the curtain a little and tell me sometime when something went absolutely crazy. I have to hear this. Mostly the problems are because we're relying on other extenuating circumstances. You're relying on traffic. You're relying on shipping. I can tell you that we had a whole crew standing outside waiting for a tent to come. 
And I mean like an army tent kind of scenario, not a small little camping tent in your backyard, of which the shipper was late and the sun was setting and the shoot was going on. And the puzzle of, or even the game of telephone, to describe it better, of people that I spoke to in that day at the highest levels of army supply you you just cannot even believe that you know i was telling this story of you know how i needed this tent and making people who would usually be procuring supplies for the real army uh, about our little tv show and (laughs) you know trying to empathize and and you know then the total fun begins because by the time you get off the phone and even if it didn't work out you have three other phone numbers to try not only that you know it's a little bit of goosebumps when you just had like 20 minutes of a general's time on your problem oh wow yeah those are like serious moments of crossing over in the real world while creating nothing but fantasy it must be so satisfying when you like make the connection when it's like you do it I can imagine it. I'm having this visual of like Doc Brown taking the two cables and like forcing them together yes. over his head. Like I have to make this connection. Like it's yes. like we're and the energy, you know, yeah. like like people, you know, because it's it's unusual for their day. Right. So a general in the army doesn't usually get a phone call like this. So then they get into it too, you know, like (laughs) everybody gets into the hunt and you've got your energy, then their energy on top of it. And it's fascinating. I mean, for them, the disappointment when the answer is no is hardly like my disappointment. You know what? You live another day. You've tried your best and that's all you can do. Absolutely. It sounds like you wake up to another, another land of problems when you wake up anyway there's there's never a shortage yeah because then you end up with four tents right because the (laughs) one that you were waiting for arrives you found three others you sent people in all different directions the next day it's some other item or they're like we're not going to use the army tent turns out (laughs) 100 100 percent i i mean those stories are more common than than any we didn't really need it. It didn't have to be this big. We can just hang two pieces of canvas over here. It's okay. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, there's like boxes and boxes of tents behind you. <laughs> oh my gosh. And you, you really feel like those are the days that you feel like you've aged a lot. <laughs> so you talked a lot about why you wanted to move into TV because you had family, you were growing and you wanted to move into a more predictable work schedule. So did that turn out to actually be true moving from movies? to TV? Well, of course not, Carol. <laughs> I had a feeling not just because of, of our stories. <laughs> I had a very false talk with myself and thought I would be on this regular schedule and that I wouldn't be looking for work as much because in those days, TV seasons were 22 episodes, which gave me off about two months a year, even though they were terrible in terms of my daughter's schedule or, you know, any kind of regular calendar for a family, you were off usually May and June. It did give me some regularity. The interesting thing was I kind of made that decision just a little shy of or a little early and then new york became a tv town that's amazing you're there right on the cusp of savannah i was on the cusp look at you you. like the cusp lady and 
And the funny thing about it is, of course, in those days, people downplayed TV and it was like second class citizen and actors didn't want to do TV. And, you know, why are you doing a TV show? But then I started to convince some of my friends, you know, hey, this is the way to go. It really started to take off in New York. And between the tax incentives and all the shows and studios that were making their home here, it really changed our industry a lot. Then that was it. It was TV for me, and I went from one to the next. The difference in TV is that you're doing maybe a pilot and then you come back for the series, but you're doing a startup show, which means that, you know, in the pilot, you shot on locations, you pulled it all together. Maybe one little set was built, but now you have to really think about these characters and bring their life to reality in their homes, in their offices. So there's a lot of building. If people go back and watch a TV series from the start, you will find a lot of gaffes. You know, people love that how one thing doesn't match another. And the reason for that is because it takes a couple of months to build sets and decorate sets. And when you're shooting, you have to be shooting. So maybe you'll shoot in a location like a judge's chambers and you'll be building that same judge's chambers or courtroom on set while you're shooting the first couple of episodes because the show's got to get on its feet. Or sometimes we build a big set and they bank together a couple or more episodes of what they have to shoot like in that courtroom. So they'll come back onto the stage and shoot maybe for 10 days in a row, you know, shoot all the different episodes out and then quickly edit. The hard thing about television and now all our lives and schedules and production companies, everything's changed. But in those days, you had to deliver a finished shot edited with music episode in a very short period of time. Like what kind of turnaround time are you talking? Well, we would shoot a new episode every eight to 10 days. That's fast for you to have to do completely different sets. Very fast. And again, there's a lot of conceptualizing of crossing over and banking things together. There are standing sets that need to get changed around. So shooting episodic television, that takes a whole other kind of determination and even keeled ways because it's a lot to do in a very short amount of time. You know, as I've talked about in the past, being in the set decoration department, we are the last line of defense. So if the set is built, it's painted, wallpapered, then finally the set like, decoration Bats! happens. <laughs> your, your turn, you've got overnight, we'll be shooting here tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. It's six o'clock at night. Beth, come on in, do, do some work. Yep. I got to go home. <laughs> yeah. So you were talking about how there was a huge difference when you started out between TV and movies. Did you feel like people got pigeonholed like as being one or the other? Yes. In the beginning, yes. And now... After all these years of doing it, sort of, uh, I would say the same. It really depends on the person that you're dealing with and their viewpoint. For sure, COVID has melded us all much more because now it's just a job. Everything that was shot practically is being seen on Netflix and other streaming platforms. You know, remember, a lot of this was just back in the days, network shows, 
pre-streaming, pre-selling to overseas. So I would never have been seeing the show that I worked on until it aired. Wow. So that was in a way, again, a double-edged sword. Like I wasn't seeing anything that I might want to change or fix. Yeah, there's no feedback there. I was in the water cooler moments of excitement that everybody else was in, you know, on a Monday morning. <laughs> it seems like TV, like you said, when when you were saying the 22 episodes, I was thinking, wow, now you have to do so much work and it might just be eight episodes or 10 episodes. Does that adjust things? I, it changes because there's a lot more script development very quickly. You know, nothing is being drawn out. Every moment is, you know, meaningful to be told because it's eight episodes and you want a, a, a beginning, a middle and an end. Right. I just can't imagine. Like, it's it's crazy to me still. We're all still so accustomed to 22 episodes that it's like, that's a season. We're like, but we only just begun. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like it's already done with the season. I'm like, oh, gosh, that's so crazy. But I know that for you, what a whiplash kind of feeling that must be when you have to change genres or, you know, tones of shows. And then you just have to jump into your next work. So we're going to talk about three different shows that have very different genres, looks and feels. We're going talk about like your law and order trial by jury time then we're gonna talk about kings and then we're gonna talk about fringe so i want you to compare these a little bit for us as we're going through and talk about how you deal with the different styles and how you kind of approach different genres Mm, set decorating school 101 please (laughs) we're all here with our pencils okay going into anything that starts with the words law and order was in a way a daunting task because As much as it came with its pedigree and history, we were being asked to create yet another slice of the story. And look how many years later that's still happening. It was very regimented in a way. It was very collaborative. And the concerns, I think, on a show like that are in a lot of ways less about set decorating. Sometimes... In Broadway shows, people walk out and there's this saying, well, you know, you were singing the set, meaning that the set actually overtook the audience members' experience of the whole thing. In this situation, the set was meant to, I almost would equate it with giving stature, you know, like when you are building the the structure the architecture and you think of these stately columns you know that's how i think about that very traditional set that had to be built and then everything else was kind of really just icing on the cake and what you really hoped for and felt that you had accomplished for the whole show was if that just supported the scripts and the actors, but mostly faded into the background. You know, you didn't want to see anything that was wrong. In God We Trust had to be centered on the wall behind the judge, (laughs) but that's all it was. You know, it was a way to provide a expected, properly expected visual. Okay, so you're almost like establishing the world behind them, but certainly not wanting to take away from the storyline or anything. Nothing to draw your attention. 
Right. And, and that is a, a craft and it is difficult to pull off, whether it's wanting to overreach with the look, you know, or whether some people consider it boring. I do not. I consider those kind of practical jobs, even like planting rice patties, a part of telling the story. So that's very important to me. It's so important because as a, I'm only going to speak as a viewer, but for for myself, like when I'm watching, I feel like it ruins it if if everything around them is wrong. If there's something that just feels like, oh my gosh, that just looks so out of place or whatever, you're you're absolutely thrown out of the story. So it's like it, it's, I know we've talked about this. Like no one ever says what a beautiful job you do, but when you do like one little thing wrong, everyone's like, oh great. <laughs> Well, look, this is another thing that's different in these times is everyone can be a critic because they know how to stop and start their DVR. That wasn't a possibility years ago. Uh, You saw what you saw and maybe you had a good eye and you caught something. But now it's been really interesting for me in the last 10 years or so. I literally get screenshots of my work sent to me with questions. Oh, wow. I love it. I'm here by your side if you want (laughs) to keep doing that. It's fine with me. But then, you know, you go from something like that, practical, logical, you know, serving the script in a big way to Kings, of which I did the pilot for the series, which really had to establish the look of a, a alternative reality, high fantasy world. That was a thought process that we all collaborated on and went through in a much different way. Every single thing went through like a a sifter of, do we have to push it on the plates, on the place settings at this party? Do we have to push it to something that's never been seen before in floral design or in color? I think we actually established a really interesting world because we did a little of that pushing and wardrobe and costume design did a little of that pushing and the locations helped us with doing a little bit of that pushing. So once there was like a percentage from all the different crafts, we came together and the overall look created that and, you know, gave people something new to think about. So then how does that compare to Fringe when you're setting that one up? I think Fringe actually ends up being the good combo of both because here we are doing this really crazy sci-fi thriller. There are expected things like Law & Order, like how you see the FBI, although ours was much more cutting edge and contemporary than... You know, we tried to show Olivia, the character of Olivia, especially having some kind of warm and good feeling home. But it was like, you never know what's coming to her next. So it was really the best combo of the alternative reality and the absolute practical. This is the way they live. Another shift for me in terms of technology And what really sort of started with Fringe and uh, concept of set decoration, in particular one set was Walter's home. It was unusually scripted, but nonetheless, to have some bowls of candy, in particular what was called red vines. To me, it's just licorice. 
I had never heard the term red vines. What? And <laughs> well, you know, from New York, it's just plain old licorice, Caroline. Nice. Uh, red, okay. red licorice, as a matter of fact. So think of this and the way one thing morphed into another and changed. By that time, how people were watching TV and really kind of getting into the backstories of the characters that they were loving and, you know, with Fringe, continue to love today. A couple of years later, in an episode of The Good Wife, one of our characters, who was a divorce attorney, offered his clients up all different kinds of candies, not just red vines. But in fact, he had those in his office. And, and a few fans had made this connection that maybe I was trying to send a message through red vines. Uh, sure. This was even a story in uh, Entertainment Weekly. It, it was so appropriate in a way because I was the one now coming out from behind the scenes and behind the velvet ropes to start having fan engagement and a licensed line of furniture and home decor and being able to really engage. So as much as... In the old days of me doing my job, technology was something that I didn't feel so great about. I didn't want to make the leap. But if I hadn't made the leap, I would never be here with a podcast, nor any of my other fan situations. Beth, I love the fan interaction because it is how we found you and it is how we have learned so much about the behind the scenes, how this all actually becomes the show that we love on TV. You have shown us so many different parts that I had no idea existed. So thank you for sharing all this stuff with us. Thank you for taking me back. You know, I think in a lot of situations, people don't go back in their early days of how they've grown in their craft and in their career and in their mindset. It's a little daunting after 30 years or more, but it's really kind of easy to see how one led to another. I think taking a walk down memory lane is always satisfying, I think, because we get a chance to understand so much of how you got where you are now. And learning your process is really fascinating for fans and how it's changed over time. I've never considered all the different parts from the fact that you opened up, you know, sections of Savannah through the the movies that you were working on there. That is like such a huge thing now going through Atlanta. That's all you see everywhere. Like go this way, go that way, go this way, cast, you know, signs everywhere. So I think it's fascinating. I'm so glad you got a chance to share this with us. Thank you. I, I think it's been equally as fun for me to kind of think back to those days. And I have a lot of really fond memories. And I'm with the same team now for really over 20 years, some of them. It's kind of nice to think about how we all came up in the business. Okay, Beth, we have a listener question this week from Jan in New Haven, Connecticut. When a show I love ends, I love hearing from the actors what items or wardrobe they may have taken from the series. Have you ever taken something from a set? Do you have a favorite item or memento from a show you worked on? Okay, well, this is a two-part serious behind-the-scenes situation here. <laughs> I have, or had, myself and and my lead man, who I've been working with for over 23 years, have hauled around, or he's hauled around for me, what we've called the pine dresser. 
the pine dresser, I don't even think got used on a show. I know it dates back pre-Kings. I've always used it as sort of a decorative element in whatever office I was in. It's something I really liked. It felt like country house piece. It stored a lot of stuff. It had these huge drawers. And a few people were convinced that it was cursed. Whoa, the curse, cursed? Bad curse. Wait a minute. I'm a scare baby, so if you're <laughs> thinking this is really cursed, you better tell me. Give me a heads up. The curse of the pine dresser. <laughs> <laughs> whenever something went wrong, like whenever a show got canceled, and there were a few of those, you know, I... I did seven or eight startup TV shows and only one of them at that point continued. You know, that would mean if it wasn't continuing that we were out of work and had to look for another job and had to pack up all our stuff. And, you know, it was always a hassle. So whenever we got to that pine dresser, everybody was like, it's the curse of the pine dresser. (laughs) (laughs) And and eventually... It, like, just self-destructed. There was no amount of glue or wood nails or (laughs) um, any adhesive that could keep that pine dresser standing. It just, like, committed suicide? It just gave out. It did. It just gave out. It just said, stop traveling me. You know, I, I don't like this job anymore, holding all these heavy books and files and you know go with scripts we used to and it it had no on the side of drawers you know how they slide in and out because they have guides yeah right well no guides on the no (laughs) guides on the pine dresser you know the pine dresser was doing all the work on its own anyway once we got rid of that pine dresser things actually got better oh wow so that's That's a a little lesson yeah that's a good lesson have to be open-minded The other thing is, you know, I bring my daughters, throughout the years, I bring my daughters artwork, paintings, little sculptures, now that she's older, some photography. What I actually take back are things that I bring to the show. I'm a minimalist because I have so many things around me at work. I have gotten to the point in my life where I don't really covet any particular objects, Sometimes I, I'll take a vase or two to add to my collection. But, nice. um, <laughs> but other than that, I just I take back what belongs to me. Uh, many sets put things that I grew up with, um, as I said, were my daughter's creations, some things that were my grandmother's, my mother's. So I just always take back what I brought. Beth, you've always given us a good lesson about how, you know, you put up a set, you put all your love into it and you have to let it go. So I feel like there's a lot to that that I'm learning, but I can hear if you're not taking stuff off of all these sets, I can understand like sometimes it's you just have the memory, have it for what it was and then walk away and be good with that. To that end, Caroline, I happen to have a quote today from Orson Welles that speaks to that really beautifully. He says, Create your own visual style, let it be unique for yourself, and yet identifiable to others. I hope that regardless of what I've put on sets over 30 years, people can identify my style and my creations from watching my work. I am so thankful we have you to to be watching out there for your work because I think it's fantastic and I'm looking forward to talking more about your work as we continue on with our Decorating the Set Season 3. Me too. 
Thank you guys so much for listening today. We are going to have so much more for you in the final episodes of this season, season two. And we're looking forward to season three very soon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to your home at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. It helps a lot in promotion of the show. Five stars, people. Decorating the Set from Hollywood to your home is an original Pod Clubhouse production. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm going to say, I'm Beth. She's Caroline. Let's talk. <laughs> what a reversal of fortune. No pun intended. <laughs> Pod Clubhouse.